Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So today I'm really pleased to welcome to the podcast, Emma Vigas. Hello, Emma. Hi, Marion. I've got a sense that this is a podcast where we're just going to have a good chat because I seem to have a good chat with you every time I see you, which hasn't been a recent because of this whole pandemic malarkey. But are you keeping well? I am. Well, yeah, I think I have the same challenges that lots of people have. So dealing with uncertainty and but yes, generally positive and um, yeah, good. good stuff. And for those of you who don't know you, because we get quite a lot of trainees and students listening to the podcast, they should know who you are, but introduce yourself. So I'm currently managing director of a business called Mio, which is a sales progression platform for estate agents. I have worked around the surveying industry for about 13 years now. So prior to my current role, I spent 10 years specializing in PI insurance and risk management for surveyors. Um, I did a lot of work with the RICS and I am also founder and chair of Women in Residential Property, which is a networking group that I think we're going to talk about later on. I want to ask you about all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, uh, and I think I got to know you probably when I was in my countrywide days because I used to work in uh, the claims side of things. And I always remember people saying, oh, Emma Vigas, speak to Emma Vigas, she knows all about claims. <laughs> How did you get to work in that kind of environment as a non-surveyor? as well because it's quite a specialist area. Yeah and I was unusual because not only am I not a surveyor I also wasn't an insurance person either so I started my career in marketing for a private client investment management firm uh, about actually 21 years ago now. I did two or three roles in sales and marketing broadly related to financial services and then I spent five years specializing in fundraising for small companies, ended up running a small business for a retail stockbroking firm, um, made a very, very poorly timed move into headhunting. I still to this day don't know why on earth I did that. Good lesson is don't move roles in a hurry because you always end up making a bad decision. And um, I was made redundant after six months. Uh, it was credit crunch time. And I remember this vividly, and I know that's a lot of people going through redundancies at the moment. So I'm just going to give a little bit of insight into my story. I had just bought my first house. I had 100% mortgage from Northern Rock and a 20% loan on top of the mortgage to allow me to do some work on the house. I'd got absolutely no savings at all. I got made redundant and I just thought I've got to get some work. So I rang my cousin who worked in an employment agency and I said, I will do anything. And I have done all sorts of jobs. I said, I'll go back to work in a factory, product, whatever. And she said, we haven't got any jobs. And I'd never heard her say that. She'd always had a job for me. I just thought, oh God. So the next day I rung everybody I knew and said, right, I'm pretty good at sales and marketing. Does anybody want any help? 
And I actually, and I thought, right. And I managed to get a couple of um, projects and I thought, fine, be a sales and marketing consultant. And then after about eight weeks, I got a call from a recruitment consultant and they said, uh, I've got this job in an insurance broking firm. I said, okay, that sounds interesting. And what they were looking for was somebody to promote insurance, their broking services into the private equity industry, which was something I knew a reasonable amount about. I knew nothing about insurance, didn't have a clue really what an insurance broker did. And I went for the interview and for some reason, Howden decided to hire me. (laughs) Obviously saw something in me and um, equity ended up specialising in surveyors. And uh, two years later, we got partnership with the RICS. And I did 10 very, very happy years at Howden. Uh, I worked with all sorts of surveying businesses. It wasn't only residential, but I've got a bit of a soft spot for residential surveyors. I've made fantastic friends, many of whom are still great, great friends now. Had a brilliant time at Howden, but got to the point where I thought, right, I need a new challenge. Um, Moved to TM, which is a property search provider as chief commercial officer. So TM is Mio's parent company. And then I moved into the Mio MD role about a year ago. But your original question was, how did I end up sort of doing insurance? An awful lot of risk management is common sense. We are, as humans, intrinsically programmed to manage risk. If we weren't, we wouldn't be here because we would have been eaten by big, scary animals many, many, many hundreds of years ago. And people tend to forget that about risk management. They make it incredibly complicated and they layer on rules and they layer on regulations. And actually, if you pair it back to the basics, it is not that difficult to understand. And for somebody like me coming into a new sector and a new industry, it is not too complicated to provide common sense guidance, which is actually much, much easier to follow than getting into the weeds. You know, I I don't need to understand everything about surveying to know how to help a surveyor manage their risk. And I think that probably stood me in quite good stead. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You know, we we have all of these rules and standards and policies and then the unwritten rules of what we should and shouldn't do. But if we can keep it really simple and to the core, authentic, honest job of being a a surveyor and and a lot of that starts with trusting your gut instinct and most of the claims or complaints that I've come across will start off with the surveyor saying oh I knew that one was going to be a problem or I knew I should have and they just never trust their gut instinct and there's something quite primitive about that common sense and gut instincts you know Uh, it's uh, unfortunately I think we are having our our gut instincts knocked out of us. Mm. There are so many rules, you know, just think about things like labelling on on food, particularly people, I I did home ec at school, Marion, I'm sure you did as well. It's a great shame they don't still teach it, but most of us actually are able to understand what, what is good food and what is bad food. But if you label everything, we don't have to understand it. We don't have to learn it. So when we're faced with a bit of food that hasn't got a label on it, we're like, oh, don't know if it's good. We do know, we do know if it's good or bad. We just need to think. And it's it's listening, listening and watching out for the signs. Yeah. You know, if something's the colour red, 
it's a sign that they're of, of danger. It, you reminded me um, about a year, two years ago, I did a presentation in Manchester for um, the RICS, and it was at the, at the Conservative Party conference. I talked about exactly that, the rules that we have. And mm. if you think as a surveyor, you leave the house, you need to know how to drive your car and the rules in the in the UK. You need to know your company policy on how to drive that car, your employee handbook, you know, when you should start work your rules for, you know, booking appointments, do's and don'ts. Mm. Then you've got the RICS, the 20,000 gazillion lender (laughs) requirements for, you know, completing a a form. And we have all these rules around us, but really, you know, they should help us do our best and and not hinder us. And to do our best job, we've got to, yes, have the technical ability but we've got to have the confidence and support around us that we know that we can make the right decision in the moment. And that's where that gut instinct comes in. And that really comes with familiarity of the job, listening and, and working, uh, uh, you know, listening to our peers, you know, and really sort of getting almost sort of grounded. Oh, we're getting very deep here, Emma. <laughs> but getting very grounded in the job that we're actually doing because there are so many distractions, so many distractions. And and that's, that's a big issue because... Actually, to be able to listen to your gut instinct, you need to have a moment to reflect. You've got a warning sign. If we reacted immediately to that warning sign, we'd be impulsive. And and that's not necessarily a good thing. It's the two minutes to think, right, the warning sign is this. And the way I manage that is this. And I think I'm, I'm going to make this point now. I think the rush to the bottom in terms of pricing of a lot of professional services, not just surveying, And the constant focus on volume over quantity is one of the worst things that's happened in the professional services industry, Mm -hmm. because that shortage of time means that we're not having the opportunity to reflect on what the the gut instinct is telling us. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, you combine that with the fact that actually people have to get the job done and people are ignoring it. And come back to the original point you made, Marion the best risk management tip you can give anybody is if they are worried for whatever reason, don't do the job. You know, I have said that in so many RICS CPD seminars. That's the first rule. Great rule for life as well. If you're worried about something, if it doesn't feel right, it's not that you don't have to do it, but give it proper thought and consideration. And we talk about surveyors having that reflective thought. And a lot of surveyors see that as, well, I won't sign off the job today, I'll sign off tomorrow, I'll sleep on it. And there's an element of that, but there's also that reflective thought in the moment while you're on site. And you're right, it just can be just a a couple of minutes. It doesn't have to be a 24 hours by the clock. I agree with you wholeheartedly on the race to the bottom when it comes to pricing, because that's really driven our culture over the last few years, whether that's lenders driving down prices on mortgage valuation fees, whether that's a comparison websites, you know, where consumers can, you know, get the the, the lowest price, but you get what you pay for. Mm. What we've lost, I think, with surveyors is that they've, they've, forgotten or perhaps we've got a generation of surveyors who haven't really understood the value that they bring and so they really struggle to market that and that's a lot of what I cover actually now on my mastermind programs that I do in the surveyor hub you know it starts off with actually looking at your values Mm. why are you a surveyor what Mm. kind of surveyor do you want to be did you know you can have your own ideal client you don't have to accept every piece of work that comes out there that sucks the life out of your 
your soul and really t- reframing and turning those those things on their head. We've had some great results with, uh, you know, those who've gone through the mastermind so far with fees going up, better work, better planning their time. And I see that when I look at other sectors, other industries that are, that are doing, uh, doing that. And surveying is very late to the party on that. And I'd like to think through the Surveyor Hub and the work we do at Blue Box that we can try and turn that on its head. But it's really about that sort of personal development that you need to do. But as most surveyors, we don't do that. Mm. You know, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time on CPD, but it doesn't always include any kind of personal development, which is as valuable and as important as the latest guidance that's come out. From a risk management point of view, the most important thing you can start with is a well-run business. Yeah. And as you say, we spend a lot of time training people on technical stuff. We don't train people how to run a business. And that doesn't matter if you're operating as a sole practitioner or you're the MD of a business with 50 surveyors. Well-run businesses are far less likely to have claims. And that covers everything from your approach to pricing to how you articulate the value and what you're offering. The piece about price versus value, I've seen it in numerous professions, Marion. It happened in insurance broking as well. It's happened to a certain extent in certain areas of law. And this is a harsh point, but competing on price is a lazy approach. It's also an easy approach. And actually understanding how to articulate value is not easy to do. And it's made even harder because an awful lot of professional services firms don't place any value at all on marketing and business development. No, not at all. I also think from the surveyors that I've met over my years, I'm sure you've, you'll have come across this, that there are surveyors are experts in what they do. I talk about surveying superpowers. You know, they can walk up to a property and they can just tell in their bones and their senses what's wrong with it, do a brilliant report. But some surveyors are absolutely awful at articulating and talking to a customer. Some love it, some hate it. But what they all, that, that a lot of surveyors seem to fall down are how to promote themselves as a business, particularly the one man bands. You look at many websites. And it'll say, we as a business do this, we as a business do that. And it turns out it's a one-man band. And there's not even a picture of that surveyor on there. It doesn't (laughs) tell you why they became a surveyor. And people buy from people. Most surveyors, actually, they don't need to go on these price comparison websites because if they worked their network, let people know what they were available for, they'll get referrals in and they don't need to pay for those referrals. Yeah. And the best thing surveyors can do, and it's so, so I'm buying and selling at the moment, Marin. And one of the questions you said that you were going to ask me about the, on this session is what have I learned from surveyors' claims? And the first thing I learned, I would never, ever, ever buy a property without having a survey done. So that's the first thing I learned. But, and so I'm buying and selling at the moment. Obviously, I've needed to find a surveyor. Surveyors never tell a story on their website. No. A surveyor facilitates getting somebody into the home that they need, not the home they want, the home they need. And they're they're very different things. And that's, I mean, that's a huge thing. You know, our our homes, whether we're, you know, renting or, or we're buying or whatever, they're massively important to us. I haven't seen a single surveying website from big surveying firms to independents where they say, this is the story of how I work with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Their dream property was, I don't know, let's pick something difficult, grade two listed house. And 
Wouldn't that be so, so powerful? And, you know, not a difficult thing to get across either. I guess, though, it, for many surveyors, one, they've not done that before and the culture hasn't been to to do that. But perhaps there's a bit of a legacy thinking here of, well, we're professionals and, you know, we are, we've got to be discreet with our clients and, you know, we shouldn't do these things. And that's where the changing really needs to think. And we see that a lot on social media. And I'm always, I mean, I, I follow and I've got a lot of followers on, on LinkedIn. I'm sure you have who are, who are surveyors. And so on my, on my feed, I get lots of pictures of things they've, they've seen in a day. And I see actually quite a few, tend to be younger surveyors starting their journey on Instagram, mm-hmm. things they've seen. And the key is to be consistent and for it to be really useful information for people. I mean, in part, that's why I created the Sway Hub Facebook group, because we saw all of these posts on LinkedIn, which were great, but wouldn't be of interest to most people unless you were a bit geeky. But then in the comments, you would see, what is that? It's like, well, as a professional, you should know, or you will need to save space to to ask them of that. So it's really interesting, I think, over the next few years, what social media will look like for surveyors mm-hmm. and how they then start to adapt it. And now more so than ever, as you know, with a, a pandemic taking over the world, we're all adapting to social media, online, and, and different ways of, of working. Mm-hmm. Really interesting to see. Tell me a bit more about your the work that you did with surveyors when you were at were at Howden's and what kind of interactions you would have because I, rem- I think I remember seeing you speak a few different events. So essentially my job was to help surveying firms get professional indemnity insurance, um, hopefully affordable professional indemnity insurance given that I started in insurance just as professional indemnity premiums were going to starting to ramp up very significantly finding what most people called affordable wasn't always easy and giving advice on risk management. So in a typical year at Howden, I'd probably speak to 500 to 1,000 surveying firms over the course of the year. And that could be everything from a sole trader who just wanted some advice on how to get insurance to speaking at RICS conferences or some of the big corporates conferences or yeah, that was that was pretty much it. I mean, in terms of risk management advice, I did do a lot of speaking. I used to write quite a lot as well. So I'd mm. building magazine, e.g. Property Week, Ritz magazines. Yeah. <laughs> and you talk about sort of the uh, PI. I mean, mm. PI is now more difficult to get than, than ever. What kind of typical scenarios would you see the first surveyors when they're struggling to get PI? What What, what sort of tips have you got? Start the renewal process early. There's nothing worse than for an insurance broker than getting a proposal form in three days before a firm renews and the firm is saying, I haven't been able to get any quotes. Mm. That's really difficult. Insurance brokers are are really busy. Understand the value of a good insurance broker. I think that's an important point, actually, about having a good insurance broker. Yeah. Because... At Blue Box, we renewed our RPI last year and the service wasn't great. Let's put it that way. You know, I had six different people contact me. Two of them called me Mr. You know, just you get to see. And I think this is something RICS should look at is actually having not just sort of approved insurers, but approved brokers in terms of having good service. The, The other thing that I found interesting is the forms that you're sent to fill out 
don't necessarily reflect where you're at in your business. It doesn't always give you the opportunity to share the journey of what your your business is about and, and where it's heading. And so that good relationship with a broker where you can explain that and mm. get that across is really vital because you can't just always do it justice in a form, can you? Yeah, but there are some commercial realities here. Mm. I hold my hand up and I say that, you know, I am probably responsible for giving surveyors perhaps a slightly gilded view of the insurance breaking industry. I'm not in the sector at the moment. The vast majority of surveying firms will pay under £10,000 for their insurance premium. Now, that's a lot of money to a surveying firm. But the reality is insurance brokers will be dealing with big insurance brokers will deal with thousands and thousands of clients a year. And that means for the lower premiums, you know, they have to put in place some things which allow them to handle lots and lots of small clients very, very cost effectively. And occasionally that does come at the expense of service. And it will mean things with things like a proposal form. Two businesses that are very different have the same form to fill out. And they may take the time to explain on a covering sheet what they think sets them apart in terms of risk management. Is that always going to be read? Will it always be seen by an insurance, an insurer? No, not necessarily. I think. The way to judge a good insurance broker is even if you can't access it all the time, you should have a reasonably good chance of accessing some decent quality advice. So it doesn't mean 24-7, but it means, you know, perhaps two or three times a year, you can ring somebody up within your broker who gets surveying, who understands the difference between a surveyor doing mortgage valuations and survey doing building surveys all the time. Um, claim service is really, really important. A, a good broker provides a very important service if there's a claim. And that's not necessarily about making sure the claim goes in the surveyor's favour. It's about holding hands through the claim. Claims are going to happen. D- d- it doesn't matter if you follow every single rule in the book. It doesn't matter if you are technically brilliant, you will, unless you're very, very lucky and it is luck, you will mm-hmm. have a bank. Yeah. So that's what you pay an insurance broker for is to support you in the really difficult times. And the really difficult times are when there is nobody out there to insure you and when you have a claim. Yeah. Um, a lot of surveyors, you know, might be lucky enough not to experience those two situations, but when you do, that's when, and, and you know, I will I will give them a promotion because they are very, very good brokers. That's when having somebody like Howden on your side makes a real difference. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's a generation of surveyors out there who have never experienced a downturn in the markets, have never experienced a claim, and will be thinking, yeah, right, as if, <laughs> you know, but some of us who are a bit longer in the tooth will have will have experienced the the highs and lows and and you you do get through it. It's all about resilience building and the life moves on. Tell me about your role now at, at Mio because you moved from the surveying sector into state agency effectively. Yeah. Tell me about that. Can I just pick up just just on one final point on insurance and risk management? When I was held and probably had 20 conversations with firms who could not get insurance. There's not a happy way out of that. Several of those firms are no longer around. One of them 
things got a little bit more serious. That's a fairly low number. But if there's anything somebody, if there's anything people listening to this can do to make sure that doesn't happen to them, do it because it's really, really sad. I I remember one sole trader I spoke to, he'd been practicing for 20 years, clean claims record. He had one claim that was a very, very big claim and that put him out of business. And it's desperately, desperately sad. So it's a dry old topic in insurance, but it is very serious. (laughs) It is, but then the, the, the challenge then is, why would you work for yourself? for the risk of that one really big claim. And what you then have is surveyors who basically are fearful of the job, mm. you know, and that then from what I've seen that affects their reporting, you know, it's all, all very defensive reports in case yeah. I get sued. And we get very, very fearful of what we do. I think in reality, the number of claims that are out there, we don't really hear true numbers of what actually goes on, but the likelihood of a claim happening if you're doing your job properly is really low. Yes, they might happen, but in terms of getting to a point where your business might fail is quite low. So it's a balance of, yes, do everything you can to be the best business and best surveyor you can, but don't work in fear or in a defensive way. It's a really difficult balance to strike, Marion. It was actually one of the points I wrote down before we started this call. And I had this conversation with the surveyor who was doing the um, survey on my house about five days ago, the insurance industry, uh, and I would be, I would include myself in this, have not helped surveyors always to provide what I would call a good quality report. And a good quality report for me as a home mover, it is, you know, really good informed guidance. And between regulation and insurance, we have in some instances driven the ability out of surveyors to provide that because they are so worried about a claim. And that's that's not a good thing. Unfortunately, it, it is where we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very interesting reading, funnily enough, comparing the survey I had done on my property six years ago with the building survey that I've just had done on another property. Uh, and just at a quick glance, I, you know, I can see already there's probably another page of caveats. So... And, and that doesn't that doesn't make the the customer experience great, you know. Um, and and for me, when I dealt with with claims, that's the you know yes, you've got the mistakes that are made. The paragraph to defend yourself isn't in there, or you just miss something. Those things happen. But what I really noticed was that whole customer engagement piece up front mm-hmm. just was non-existent, not really. And that started with your price comparison lowest race to the bottom you know the expectations we talk about customer expectations all the time we don't really understand it you know but what they were thought they were getting for their money is it just an insurance guarantee but the whole lack of engagement of talking to your customer reassuring them yes you can talk to me I'm your surveyor you can talk to me at any time you know we're sort of I'm making yourself accessible and all of those all of that upfront support I mean yes you need the aftercare but all of the upfront support um, allows you the opportunity to tune into what they're really worried about and that can help perhaps not get rid of the claim totally but certainly 
lessen the amount of things they complain about. Because when customers write a letter to complain, they don't write about one thing. They write about 23 different things, you know, and they spot everything. And you can reduce that. And that makes a claim a lot easier and swifter to deal with and a a better outcome at the end. So that that upfront is really important. The engagement thing is really important. So Mm. I've just commissioned a building survey. It's costing me £1,400, which is is a fair price. It's not it's not cheap and it's not the most expensive, but it's a fair price for what I'm asking to be surveyed. At no point during the appointment process has the surveyor said, right, let's have a half hour call before I go and do it. Now, I will push for that because I know what I want and I understand the process. £1,400 is, by most people's standards, a lot of money. Mm. I think that's pretty poor service. It is. And you know what? It doesn't, whilst speaking to the surveyor is the icing on the cake, that's what can make, you know, if you get a good surveyor who takes the time, that's where you get the great feedback. But, you know, sometimes it's that engagement up front. It could just be talking to a really helpful, knowledgeable person in the office that just lets you know what's going on. Um, It doesn't have to be the surveyor all the time and we get time for money. But if you think about the value, you're absolutely right. £1,400 just to get a report, you know, contact. And that's standard. That's really commonplace. And, and they were paying before I've got the report. Yeah. And yeah. I've had no engagement with them. Yeah. And I was not impressed by that. Do you know what, Emma? I'd hate to be your surveyor. Yeah. <laughs> does, he, does he really know who you are? <laughs> no. <laughs> But, but it, it, you know, the, the point you made about, you know, understanding what I want, mm-hmm. for all they know, I could be 75 years old. No, actually, age doesn't come in. I could have any number of challenges, which aren't necessarily related to the house I'm moving into, but have some impact on how I need the reporting played back. Yeah. I could have a specific requirement. You know, do I want to widen doorways or something? Now, I know to make that clear to the surveyor. And I also, let me just caveat, I know that the surveyor is going to provide a really good report. That, that's, mm. I know that. But it's just, you know, half an hour. Or even just send me a questionnaire that I can complete. But there's, a, yeah, there's even the, actually, the whole accessibility point, yeah. you know, you could have challenges reading, you know, you could be yeah. blind, you know, um, the average reading age in the UK is 11. Yeah. But those people can still, those people can still afford a property. They may have a, you might speak a different language, you know, lots, and, and lots, yeah, all of those things. And by not in, engaging up front and understanding that and taking the time, it just means that actually you don't have a real relationship with your surveyor. And also... You know, I'm being asked to pay for the report. Now, I had asked four surveyors, and I'm going to say this on record. If one of them had asked me to pay £1,800, but had taken the time to give me a call, I would have gone for that surveyor. Mm. Now, okay, I'm relatively affluent. I I know what I want from a surveyor. But, that you know, we talk a lot about the race to the bottom. I will pay for a good quality service. And whenever I instruct a professional, I say for me, it's about quality of service more than fee. I'm not the only person out there who's like that, particularly not with something as important as the survey. 
So it's well, yeah. well next time you need a survey, Emma, if you let me know. I know quite a few surveyors. <laughs> yeah, I uh, you, it won't surprise you to know I did I use my network, Marin. Funny enough, none of my former clients were willing to do it for me. <laughs> I can imagine why. <laughs> so listen, tell me about your new role in um working in a state agency. Because um I'm really we've both been part of Kate Faulkner's home buying yeah. and selling group, which is fantastic and I think the idea of bringing people together who can actually make a difference to the whole home buying selling process and not work in silo is really really important so how did you then sort of make that leap over to the dark side <laughs> the bright I was side a, I was asked and I said <laughs> yes <laughs> so so what tell me about your role there though so I'm managing director Mio is a fairly early stage business so that the concept has been developed over the course of about five or six years, like lots of concept. It's gone through various iterations. Mio today is a sales progression platform for estate agents. So quite simply, if you're an agent, you're selling a property, it reaches sold subject contract. There's obviously lots of things that have to happen between SSTC and um, exchanging. Mio just guides the agent through a very simple process helps agents stay organized. There's an integrated consumer app. So as the agent says in the platform, this has happened, the buyer or seller is updated. And there's also an integrated chain view as well. So if there's a a property that's part of a three property chain, the more agents that use Mio, the more clarity you get up and down the chain. So single view of the chain is something that the Mm -hmm. property industry has been calling about for years. Very simple platform. There's some really clever stuff in it. So as an example, Mio takes data feeds from other businesses involved in transactions. For example, we take data feeds from surveying businesses. So that means that the agent's automatically notified when the mortgage valuation has been instructed and when the mortgage valuation has been completed. We take data feeds from mortgage broking businesses. So again, the agent can see when the mortgage offer has been received. And that significantly reduces the amount of chasing that agents have to do, but also via the Mio chain view, which can be served up to a conveyancing platform or a mortgage broking platform, it reduces the amount of chasing that everybody has to do. How did I come to do it? I I love early stage businesses. Uh, I'd worked around early stage businesses for about six years. They're exciting. I like the agility I like the fact that we all roll our sleeves up and get on with it. So I spoke to you, Mary, and I was building a database, which is probably one of the very first jobs I had to do when I work in marketing, and I still do it now as a managing director. <laughs> and um, what have you learned about estate agents since you've, since you've moved over into this side of the world? They're no different to any other profession. There's some fantastic estate agents. There's lots of good estate agents. There's a few bad ones exactly the same as any other industry. The majority of them work incredibly, incredibly hard. I think like every profession involved in residential property, they are hamstrung by poor technology and by a bad end-to-end process. And their attempts to change that are hampered by regulatory challenges, not so much in the agency industry, but across the property transaction as a whole. And by the difficulties of integrating multiple different pieces of tech 
and also to some extent by suppliers coming in who claim to have something whizzy and don't really understand either the sectors they're working with or the process they claim to be trying to re-engineer. And I think that's where, you know, if you, if you look at my senior team in Mio, we have worked across every facet of a residential property, mm. all of us for at least at least 10 years. And that's really, really important. We don't just understand what agents do. We understand surveyors, conveyances, oh. lenders, brokers. We couldn't do what we're doing without that understanding. It's very easy to be um, distracted by the shiny tech toys that come out. You know, we see it with, with surveyors actually in their reporting software tools but actually you know if you want to work with people who really understand the business almost have been in the grain of the wood if you like because it just it just makes a difference and that that common language that you all understand what's going on is this your first and um, this is your first md role yeah how have you found that it's an exciting opportunity <laughs> do you know we started by talking about the importance of reflection marion mm. I- not a particularly reflective person. <laughs> I'm what am I? Oh, I'm I'm 12 months in and and I'm still I've still got a job. So I think it's going all right. <laughs> no, how have I found it? Oh. I, I asked the question, Emma, because you started off, you know, talking about, you know, the jobs that you had and you know, actually that that meeting you had with Howdens and why did they hire you? I can mm. see why they hired you because you would turn your hand to anything you showed absolute resilience and were able to just to just go for it go for the opportunity and what was you know what you needed to do at the time and so to lead a, a team and to get to a position when you when you look at your career that's quite inspirational for a lot of people and especially women you know to get to that stage where you're an MD and what does that mean and to be the kind of leader that you want to be with your team so i think the things that are really important to me fairness we genuinely all muck in and I believe in leading by example so if I ask my team to do something there's a pretty good chance that either I'm still doing it now or I will have done it before I have very very clear views on the kind of business I want Mio to be and I want us to be a nice business to work in and a nice business to do business with and that extends to things like always being prepared to give people a helping hand and that, that's not just my team, that, that's the agents we work with, the, the people in my business network. I, I think it's really, really important. I think focus on what we're doing, you know, prop tech, it's a horrible word, hugely competitive. I could literally spend every single day sat on LinkedIn or reading Property Industry Eye looking at what our competitors are up to. I place a great deal of stock in the belief that nobody ever won a race by looking over their shoulder. We set our own path. We won't always get it right. No business always gets it right. We have to be willing to fail. That's really, really, that's really, really important. And it's something that startups are often brilliant at, particularly startups run by younger people. You know, they're used to trying 20 things and five things might work. A lot of more mature businesses forget that. Uh, and that that is the first signs that you're losing your ability to innovate. And it's so, so important. I think the final point around leadership is just having a great team around you. I'm very, very lucky in the respect that I've got two other senior people in the business who are not only brilliant, but I trust implicitly and we get on really, really well. And that's that's really critical. Let me ask you next about 
women in residential property and how that came about because it's a fabulous network for women I, I always smile when people ask how it came about and uh, I always try and give the um, honest answer which is that I got to the point where I had a lovely network of women across surveying and and, and conveyancing and sort of lending and um, I decided it would be nice if we all got together for lunch and we did all get together for lunch and we had a lovely lunch and I, I we sort of next day I thought, oh, do that again. That was about four years ago and it's continued to grow. I think we've got 400 members now. So it's very much critical things about women or critical feature of women in residential property is that it's pan profession. So surveyors, conveyances, agents, mortgage brokers, lenders, anybody with an interest in the residential property sector. And that's really important because we aren't going to solve any challenges unless we collaborate and work together. And collaboration starts with an understanding. And all too often, the view that is or, or perpetuated within the media is that agents and conveyances can't work together. Agents and surveyors can't work together. You know, agents say it's conveyances fault, conveyances say it's... Mm-hmm. Okay, there are hundreds of examples where people move into the homes they need because agents, surveyors and conveyances have worked really well together. And we need to celebrate that and we need to build on it. And women in residential property is just one vehicle for doing that. It's a very friendly group. It's informal. It's a little bit fly by the seat of our pants every so often because I'm sort of doing this as a sideline with lots of help from the great team at Practical Vision. Thank you, Grace and Karen. But yeah, we meet about once every five weeks by Zoom. Next meeting's 4th of November. Lovely. <laughs> You've got a charity that you support through that. Yeah. So we, we support a charity called Ella's. And Ella's is a small charity based in London. And they provide really essential support for women who've been the victims of slavery and trafficking. I remember the first time I met Emily. And Emily's the lady who runs Ella's. And she was explaining to me the need for the work they do. And essentially, if you're a woman who's been trafficked into this country and and you are fortunate in the context of these ladies is, is not the right word, but you manage to escape, the likelihood is that you will end up going back to the position you've escaped from because there is so little formal support available. And Ella's provides that support. And it's really about helping women overcome the, the most horrific, horrific situations in order that they might have a life and a future going forwards. And we worked with Ellis for about two years. So every event we tried to make some kind of donation through to them, whether it's just charging people a very small sum to attend. We, when we can meet face to face, we used to do prize draws and things. But yeah, they're a fantastic charity. We're very proud to support them. Yeah, and I think it's not—it's not just about raising money for a worthy charity. I think it's in—it gives us a real insight as to actually what it's like for some people. You know, we work in the home buying and selling sector, generally with people who can afford to buy a home. You know, yes, there's repossessions sometimes, but you know, we we only ever see sort of one sector of society. And I think having some insight to charities like like Ella's is really important. It's a real reality check. About, you think it was about a year and a half ago, I went to a, a small conference at Coventry Council with Women's Aid and the, I think it's called the Women's Budget Group. And they'd produced a report saying nowhere in the UK is housing affordable to women. 
And they had all of these stats and all this sort of information on actually what happens to a woman who's in a relationship, they've got a mortgage and it's abusive and they've got nowhere to go and how they then sort of get trapped. And it was really insightful for all the numbers and the stats and things. But then they talked about, they had some caseworkers share some of the stories of the women, ordinary women like you and me, who found themselves in the most horrific living conditions. And I mean, literally, we were all sat there in the council offices nearly in tears, but just so inspired at the same time. Mm. I think the more that we can tune into some of that in the work that we do in, in, in any way, I think will really help us, I guess, you know, understand, appreciate our privilege, perhaps, but also that everything that we do isn't just about the home buying and selling process. It's that wider built environment, that wider ripple effect that we have and why we've become surveyors or work in this kind of industry. And that's really important, Marin, is I think too often when we think about homes, we think about buying or selling a home. The reality is a home can be a single room for somebody where they simply feel comfortable and they feel safe. And everybody has a right to that. You know, there's been a debate running recently about, you know, minimum property sizes. I personally think that there's a lot of people out there who would rather have a single room where they are warm and safe than be in a four bedroom house where they are permanently in danger. And we lose sight of that. And we, you know, we talk an awful lot about things like property values and property prices. And that's not what we should be doing. We should be making sure that everybody in this country has a space that they can call home. And we need to recognize that home for different people means different things. And it's not all about getting on the housing ladder or, you know, moving from a two bedroom to a three bedroom or, you know, having the six bedroom semi-detached. It's just about giving people something that they call home. And that is so, so important. Uh, And it's such a fundamental right of society to demand that. Because if you have that base, everything else can grow from it. Emma, it's been brilliant to talk to you today. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Marion. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.